We have this huge transition of wealth that's happening. I did an article about a year and a half ago that from baby boomers to millennials, the, the wealth transfer was $6.2 trillion. Like, I think it's like up to eight now. Like, there's just so much. And that is going to be capital chasing deals. And so as, as soon as that spigot turns back on with construction, we're going to start seeing that capital and start fill that void and continue to help meet that housing demand. Here's the thing. That's 5.3 million homes that need to be delivered today. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Real Estate Rundown. And, you know, today I've got the opportunity to speak with a, someone that has got a ton of experience, works in a fairly good size organization, and has got a lot of information for us. So I want to welcome to the show Whitney Elkins Hutton and have her give us a brief rundown on who she is and the company she's working for currently. And then we'll get into all the juicy insights on what we're seeing in the market today. Awesome. Thank you so much, Shannon. As you said, my name's Whitney Elkins Hutton. I'm the Director of Investor Education at PassiveInvesting.com. We are a private equity firm based out of the Carolinas, and we focus on multifamily, self-storage, express car washes. We also have a first position lean real estate debt fund and just recently opened up a preferred equity fund for multifamily real estate. So we got plenty of rabbit holes to dive down here. I'm actually not a real estate trained real estate professional. I didn't go to college for this. My journey actually starts off in 2002, completely by accident. Bought a house with a significant other, relationship fell apart, and I had a house and used a rehab. I had green shag carpet, psychedelic beads painted on the walls from the 1960s. And anyways, 11 months later, after rehabbing the house, I you know I sold the property, which was probably my number one investing mistake. You know, looking at what that house was yield now these days, but I walked away with $52,000 in my pocket and had actually hadn't been paying for any housing expense for 11 months. And that's when it hit me. I'm like, wait, hold on. I can actually unhook my time from the value I create in the world. And I did several more live-in flips, both by myself and then also with my husband. And then we scaled a 36-unit single-family rental portfolio got into multifamily, purchased a 52-unit multifamily building in partnership. I've done general partnership deals. I've raised for over 29 deals for raising capital and general co-GP there. So anyway, long story short, I've done a lot of things, but it's really led me to where I'm at today, which is focused on helping investors understand their goals, risk, and timeline. And, and more importantly, how does this wonderful world of passive real estate complement or actually, you know, work into their portfolio to help them achieve time and choice freedom in their lives? Yeah, you know, and, and you started out, your first deal was great because you actually were the one that wound up with the house. I mean, normally when a relationship breakup happens, everybody loses the house. But, you know, and, you know, I also find that most people don't intentionally get into real estate. Somehow real estate gets into them. And then through more analysis and, and things like that, they get more involved in it. And it's kind of just one of those natural evolutions. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, it's great to have you on the podcast, because it's about providing information to people that maybe find themselves in a situation very similar to yours, where information is what you need, because you've already kind of taken action. And you've got a you've got a situation here. You know, when you say live in flips, I remember as a kid, you know, growing up as a as a child of a real estate family, really, my parents were both a real estate broker and a and a and a builder developer. 
I remember we always lived in a construction zone, right? I mean, or, or how many houses we almost moved into because dad sold them the week before we were supposed to move, right? But, you know, so we could probably trade some pretty good war stories from, from our time in the learning curve. But, you know, let's, let's talk a little bit, Whitney, about what you're seeing because you've got kind of a right-hand seat to a lot more deal flow than most people. What are you seeing happening in the market right now, say the last, well, let's just talk about 23, some of the changes that have come about and what, what you guys are doing and what you're seeing some of the mistakes that others are doing? Well, I, I mean, if we're going to put the container to multifamily real estate, I mean, because, you know, real estate in general, that's a, that's a large, large arena to dive into. But with multifamily real estate, you know, I, I think it's no secret that, you know, I think people are well aware that with the run up at Fed interest rates, you know, last year into early part of this year has really put a slow down that the economy, especially the commercial real estate economy, it's you know, really brought to light a lot of uh, operators who purchase buildings with construction or bridge debt. And, you know, there's a time and place to use that type of lending, but to use it, just to use it to juice returns is not, you know, you know, generally not warranted. And we saw a lot of that practice happening. And so what is the, the adage is when the tide goes out, you figure out who's swimming naked. So we're seeing a lot of operators get caught in a really um, interesting predicament. They have a great asset potentially, and but they're now the bank is escrowing for the next rate cap and you know and for a potential refinance. And a lot of those you know those bridge debt that's starting to come due towards the end of 2024. So this year has been kind of a pretty big year. We're also seeing some areas uh, of the United States cool off rent-wise. And so, you know, they experienced a huge run-up in asset prices as well as rent inflation for, you know, during COVID and post-COVID. And um, we're seeing some of that trend cool off. And so what we're, I, I think the trends are, if the operator underwrote really well, you know, stress tested the asset and they just got caught in an unfortunate situation, you know, I think there's opportunities out there for them to work with the bank, with banks to reposition properties, maybe work with other groups, you know, like us that have a preferred equity fund for performing assets to, to help them reposition that, that, that loan and get the, get into a cash flowing position. But then there's that whole subset of other operators, those other properties that weren't you know, the, the lending didn't match the business plan. We didn't see properly underwritten assets. You know, the NOI is starting to fall. The asset valuation is starting to fall as well because of the NOI. And they're just, they're going to be a little bit underwater. Like, what are they going to do? So I think this is going to be a really interesting year. I mean, I think you and I have been to several real estate conferences over the past year and all the economists are saying survive to 2025, right? Like that's, it's catchy, but it's probably true. The, the, the Tealy say that um, the Fed probably will start dropping interest rates in the next six to 12 months, but I feel like we've been seeing that for six months. So, <laughs> so you know, if you're an operator that's caught in a tricky position, what are you going to do? Are you going to wait for six months and see if the rates start dropping? Or are you going to start figuring out, you know, a plan B, C, and D now, just in case we don't see it? you know, rates drop. And I hate to say rates drop. I think it should be rates lowering. Rate drop implies we're going to go back to three, four, five percent. I don't know. 
I don't see that either. And, you know, most of my real estate career has been done above 7%. I would say 95% of my real estate career has been done above 7%. And, you know, you mentioned underwriting. You know, a lot of people were underwriting that, you know, they were buying it at X cap and they were going to sell it at even a lower cap rate. They were buying it at 3% interest rate and they were going to refinance at a 2.5% interest rate. You know, those subtle changes make a massive impact especially when you don't have a plan B or C or D. But, you know, having been in real estate since 2002, I think you said, you know, you've seen different cycles and you've seen the ups and the downs. That really, you know, getting your finger slammed in the door, watching your neighbor get their finger slammed in the door kind of helps you to appreciate why you want to think through what if the business plan doesn't go right? Because like you said, there's a ton of people out there that they have executed the business plan perfectly. They bought it with $1,400 rents. They're sitting at $1,800 rents, but we've seen you know, insurance go up by an astronomical amount this year. Interest rates are going up. What they're looking to refi into is 5% higher than what their bridge money was. I mean, all those kinds of things that have kind of created a perfect storm where the only other opportunity is to bring in additional equity. And you mentioned that you guys have a preferred equity fund. Explain that in a little bit more detail, how that would work. If if my interest rate that I have doesn't work, how is a preferred equity piece of the stack going to help me in this kind of environment? Because I can't afford it anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a lot of these multifamily buildings, we're, starts, we're still seeing them able to secure an interest rate, like, you know, a, a, a Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac interest rate, maybe even a HUD rate you know, closer to like five and a half, six percent. So they're not, you know, five percentage points over where their original purchase price was. They're also probably two or three years into their business plan. So they've seen significant NOI growth. Now, where did they get, where's the problem? Well, the problem is, you know, one, they're the, you know, they hit their interest rate cap. Maybe they didn't underwrite to hit that cap, but they're actually in the point in the business plan where they need to refinance. And that rate cap, when they originally underwrote the plan, was probably going to cost them, they were plugging in $100,000, maybe $200,000, let's say on an $80 million purchase. That same rate cap insurance policy is going to cost them $1.5 to $2 million. That's, you know, 10 times increase. And so for a preferred equity deal, you know, or what we can do is that we can come in and we can, you know, pay for that rate cap, help pay for the expenses to refinance the property. If everything else holds true in the underwriting. Um, we can come in and pay for that. And then on the back end, you know, your, that business plan still has another two and a half, three, maybe four years of runway on it. And in that time, you know, for a performing asset, a stabilized performing asset, you know, $1 million or $2 million shouldn't break the bank is the beyond, you know, actually the, what's the alternative, I guess. They have to sell, you know, you know, sell at a loss, go to a capital call to their investors. You know, this actually could be a cheaper option for them. And, and, you know, a lot of investors, I guess the natural question is like, if I were an LP in one of these deals, how does, what does that do to me in my position and my preferred equity positions coming over me? Well, it doesn't really dilute the returns to the limited partner investor. You know, our underwriting is about point a half percent to one percent because we're actually negotiating that portion largely from the general partnership. Okay. So really what you're able to do is you're able to come in and provide a lifeline, some additional capital that is buying the rate cap and in your particular model. 
and then taking part of the GP side of things to offset what you need to make for your fund to be profitable. Mm -hmm. So it, it allows the general partner to still meet the obligations mostly or in full to the LPs while diluting themselves when they don't have the ability any other way to do that. So it's really keeping keeping the LP partners from losing capital and giving them an opportunity to still hit the returns at exit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that's pretty smart. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you think so. <laughs> but, and also, you know, think about it this way, you know, it also can be a really great business move, right? If you're, you know, a, a general partner and say you have, you know, 15 multi-family deals and two of them are experiencing issues, this can really help you say, you know, you know, maintain your business model with your investors, you know, keep, keep, you know, you're no, now you're seen as a problem solver, right? And not coming at the investor isn't paying the price. So whenever you get to the other end of this market, you know, you're, you're, I mean, essentially your, your, your brand is still intact. I mean, I hate to say that, that sounds like, like down, downward, down Debbie, you know, but you know, doing a capital call can be really, you know, kind of bog people down. Even capital calls happen. I think that's been one thing that I would encourage limited partners to understand. Capital calls are part of the private equity business. Do we want to see them? No, but capital calls happen for good and for a bad reason. And so it's just, a, you know, when you're in a hot market, like since 2016 to 2021, everything was going up and to the right. Everybody looked like a genius. So Right, right. No, and it's true. And we've had that happen to us as well. I mean, you know, when you underwrite conservatively and things go the way that they went, man, it's really easy to look good, but you can't always, you know, be drinking your own Kool-Aid and believing the way you feel. You've got to still continue to underwrite properly. So shifting gears again, as you see markets encountering change and, you know, from your and my experience, it's not necessarily change. It's re, you know, it's coming back to a level that we're used to, right? And while we were able to take advantage of the great market and the lower interest rates, we kind of knew that wasn't going to happen. But what, what have you guys done in the last 12 months that has continued to keep your brand going, keep you guys deploying capital, keep you guys in the center of the mix where I know you love to be and, and making deals happen? What's, what's your approach now? Well, we're still underwriting multifamily. You know, we've probably over underwritten over 500 projects. We've gotten the best and final on several projects. Uh, and, you know, we've lost investment final in largely because we don't want to overpay for property. So I saw this trend coming out of COVID. I'm seeing it again. There are, there are operators out there that their business, the way their group is structured, they have to do a deal or they perish, right? They need that acquisition fee. Now, don't get me wrong. Like we do need to do deals, but we're, we're structured in a different way that we don't have to do the deal in order to keep the lights on. So, you know, that helps safeguard our investors' money a lot better. But we're going to continue and we're starting to see some of those multifamily deals. You know, you know, I, we're, we're kind of, you know, you and I were talking before the show. I think the end of 2023, beginning of 2024 is going to be really busy for us when it comes to multifamily. We also brought on express car washes in the past two years. And that was a way we were already doing that before all of this started happening with the Fed interest rate. And this was a way to help our investors diversify 
their portfolios, get a larger cash flow and equity position and larger tax benefits by investing in an operating business. So we brought that on. And then we've just seen our real estate debt fund just explode over the past years. You know, need is there. You know, banks are pulling back on their ability to finance investor loans. And so which just, you know, that void might be there, but that allows the investor to come in and solve that problem. And, And it's been great for us. It's been great for our investors and for our borrowers, right? They're continuing to take advantage of the market. And then our fourth pillar is the preferred equity fund. So, yeah. Yeah. Clause. Well, and you guys have you guys have been diversified from the beginning, right? In mm-hmm. in asset class and market. And you know, we find that while everybody's darling for the last couple of years may have been multifamily, diversification needs to happen in a portfolio. You can't be, you know, you can't be all invested in multifamily in Houston. You know, you need to be outside of those concentrated areas, while it's nice to have multiple assets in an area, putting all your eggs in one basket in any business isn't always smart. And as you guys see, you know, the survive to 25, and, you know, this is what I what I tell people all the time. They're like, you know, there's not going to be any deals. And I, I keep telling people there's going to be plenty of deals. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the first part of this year, you guys probably experienced it too, there was a really wide gap between buyers and sellers, right? You're, you know, you're always, you know, optimistic when you're selling and you're always pessimistic when you're buying, you know, and you've always got that gap you're trying to close. Are you seeing that gap kind of get smaller and smaller as we get toward the end of the year and the realization that rates aren't going anywhere quickly? They may do something, but not a lot. And people are starting to see, well, I I have to get real about this and I have to make some moves. Yeah, I think we're, I think that's part of it. I think adjustment of expectations on the seller's part is part of it. I think it's also people who are needing to, you know, transact before the end of the year for tax purposes. Uh, I think that's another thing. Or they're needing to transact because they have their loan coming due and maybe they haven't been able to secure, you know, they don't want it. They want to try to sell. It's worth, maybe they see it's worth it to do like a, a transaction and take a little bit of haircut on the sales opposed to do a preferred equity position or, you know, whatever it may be. So we're starting to see kind of that, that immediacy, you know, happen here. We anticipate the deal flow to continue to pick up into 2024. Will it be like 2021, you know, or, or in 2019 where we're doing 10 deals a year? I, don't know. We'll see. Hey guys, real quick. If you're enjoying this show, I want to ask you to please give us a five-star rating and review on whatever platform you're listening to right now. Leaving us a rating and review takes just a few seconds and it's a great way to show your support for our show. Your support helps us reach more listeners and create better content. Thank you very much. We really appreciate it. Now let's get back to the show. Yeah. Well, and you know, there's there's a there's a certain volume that's healthy, right? Too little isn't healthy. Too much is definitely not healthy because there's there's things that get missed, you know. And as we're kind of getting back to a like you and I know a normal cadence in the market, of this is where deals are going to happen. This is the price point. This is how the lending is going to come together, you know. And one of the other things I'm seeing is sellers are also now being reasonable with timing expectations, right? There's no more million dollar hard earnest monies and a 45 day close, right? Everybody's being reasonable again. 
because we're seeing that, hey, you know what? It's going to take both buyer and seller to get this deal done. It's not that the seller gets to sit back with their arms folded and go, well, if you're not going to buy it, I'm taking your earnest money and there's three guys behind you, you know? Mm -hmm. So we're starting to see more normal in the market. What are you seeing on the, on the, on how crowded the market is? Are you seeing people disappear that were here a couple of years ago? What are you, what are you seeing? I just live in my little hobbit hole. <laughs> well, you know, I also run the multifamily investor nation podcast, which you've been a guest on by the way. And, yes. so, you know, I get to talk to operators left and right and, you know, everybody's still here now, whether they are, I think we're starting to see a lot of people partner up a lot more, you know, groups shift from being straight operations into capital, you know, co-GP roles, you know, people are just trying to figure out a way to serve their investors and get some sort of deal done. Now, I, there's transactions happening at every level, right? You know, the world that I'm in, usually the transaction is like a hundred units or more. Um, but there's transactions at every level. I mean, I talk to people, you know, all the time at conferences that are like, you know, look at the cool, like multifamily build, 20 unit multifamily building that I just bought. I have coaching clients that I coach personally that, you know, I have one that's selling three buildings in Kansas city right now. So transactions are still happening. I think it's the volume of them are down and it's not one group securing 10. It's maybe two groups getting two together. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and again, how normal was that in 15? You know, how normal was that in 06? You know, and so I think, I think people are kind of adjusting their expectations. And I hear all the time, well, the, the new market we're in. And I'm like, man, you guys, if this is a new market, no wonder I feel so damn old, you know? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it, it, it's, we see these cycles. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of ways to do that. And just like you guys are doing with the express car washes, you know, you've got different pillars of your business that when, when this one isn't as busy, that's okay. There's still transactions and there's still things happening in the other areas of your business that are keeping the lights on and making the world go round. And so it doesn't become something that is so deal, single deal oriented that things like what you talked about earlier are happening. And I think we're also going to see you know, we're, we are seeing, like you said, some softening in the market on in some markets on rents. We're seeing some temporary oversupply come on into some markets like Phoenix that are delivering, you know, thousands of units that were all started during COVID and now they're all coming to deliver. And so it's going to help reprice some of that market a little bit because there's more availability. Supply and demand is still an issue. But again, where you guys are operating in North Carolina, I still think that they're kind of supply constrained in that particular market. I know that some of the other big markets, Dallas is still running a little bit of supply constraints. So what do you see as far as new apartments coming on and, and some of this maybe relieving some of the pressure that are in some of these still red hot markets? Yeah. You know, the markets we're in are still, like you said, you know, largely supply con constrained, especially for the type of asset that we're looking to secure, which is that, you know, high B plus A class. Now, I think that's an interesting stat, stat that you talk about, about supply and demand. What's right behind it with the, the run of the interest rates, we're seeing a halting of construction. So while new deliveries from 2020, 2021 are coming online, the deliveries that were permitted to start in 2020, late 2021 into 2022 into 2023, guess what? Are stopped. So this, right. they are. And it, right. So 
again, this is markets move. This is slick, cyclical. And guess what? We're under what we're undersupplied by like 5.3 million homes. We're reshoring all the, this industry back from China. And there's, we just need all this industrial space. Not only do we need the industrial space, we need the employees to work at the industrial space. There's all these trends that are pushing, that are forcing these macroeconomics that are just going to continue to, to make multifamily a good, solid asset to invest in. Will it be red hot like it has been? Maybe not. Maybe that will come back. You know, maybe it'll take like three to five years for that to happen. But, you know, it's still a very solid asset there, right? Where we have this huge transition of wealth that's happening. And, you know, I, I did an article, you know, about a year and a half ago that, you know, from baby boomers to millennials, the, tra- the, the wealth transfer was $6.2 trillion, right? Like, I think it's like up to eight now. Like, there's just so much. And, and that is going to be capital chasing deals. Right. And so it's, as soon as that spigot turns back on with construction, we're going to start seeing that capital, you know, start fill that void and continue to, you know, it, to help meet that housing demand. Here's the thing. That's 5.3 million homes that need to be delivered today. 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 And how did we get that shortage? We got that shortage because 2008, <laughs> they shut off the housing building again. Yes. And so. I mean, we, we, now we're going to continue to exacerbate the problem. In fact, smart money would say now is the time to be building because I went from seeing one or two entitled deals a quarter mm-hmm. to seeing one or two entitled deals for multifamily a week now, you know, mm-hmm. and yet, you know, where it pencils and where the land is and where the costs are, you know, there's all of that. Nobody has a crystal ball. So how are you guys looking at that when you're, when you're looking at it going, okay, there's not a lot now. We're still doing deals that make sense. Are you guys just only looking at what's immediately in front of you and dealing with what comes down the pipe? Or are you looking to expand into other asset classes more than what you're already in right now? Yeah, we're always looking to expand the asset classes. And, and here's the thing. I mean, we I'll just... Um, allude to a couple of them. One, you know, our, one of our founders, you know, has a background in medical office, um, uh, non-surgical surgical center development. All right. He's in the process of selling those, those properties. He has background experience developing those practices. So could medical offices come online for us? These are all things that we test internally with our founders and, and, and with our company before we bring them to our investors. Um, pickleball is like a hot craze now. You know, we're always looking for cash flowing businesses that are a low operational overhead, low expenditure to be able to bring to our investors. Now, when we come back to multifamily, the residential side of things, we did, we invested in the build to rent community last summer. So, you know, I know we've had internal discussions uh, on, you know, is that an area of the business that we want to build out? So there's several different ways we could go with this. But what makes the most sense for us to devote our time and our, most importantly, our intention to, to actually building out? Because just because you can doesn't mean you should, right? Shiny object syndrome has, has distracted many a young sailor. <laughs> right? So, you know, we want to be very, you know, some of these investments might just be momentum investments that our founders, and, and you know, we bring to a select few of investors, you know, but what do we bring to our, our core and uh, investment portfolio? We actually build the, you know, the business around will, will be different. Yeah. Well, and, and bottom line is that, that the, 
the way that you guys move has to make sense. There has to be returns. There has to be cash flow. There has to be benefits there, regardless of what you're doing. And I think that's where, you know, some operators kind of lost sight of that in 21, 22. They started really day trading real estate that, you know, we're going to buy it. We're going to execute the business plan nine months from now. We're going to have all the rents up. 18 months from now, we're going to be out of the deal, you know, and that's not really the easiest approach. And and then still others thought about timing the market and waiting for it to hit a peak and come crashing down. You know, in your opinion, do you see a crash coming in real estate prices? I mean, I'm talking, you know, 30, 40%. We've seen some, but are you anticipating something like that coming? And that's why you guys are maybe holding cash on the sidelines. What are your thoughts? Well, to answer, you know, to address kind of the first part of that comment, you know, you know, the way we're, our business is structured, we don't have just two managing partners trying to do 10 different things. We are very thoughtful about how we build out our business. We want to have a managing partner over each one of our verticals. And so, and so what verticals make sense for us as a business and also to our investor to include? Okay. Now that kind of like plays into the question about the crash, right? Is there going to be a crash? I honestly don't know. I don't have a crystal ball to say that that's the case, but we are, it's undoubtedly that we, you know, commercial real estate is in, you know, challenging times. And here's the thing I encourage, you know, you know, people listening to this podcast, if you, if this hasn't message hasn't hit home already, real estate is very local. I, I was about to say regional. I don't even know if that's true. It's very local, right? So if you are reading these headlines on CNBC or, you know, you know, Forbes or whatever, that real estate, you know, crash is coming. Yes. And where? I just saw an article today. I want to say it was out of Green Street and it was like a, a beautiful, not actually, I shouldn't say beautiful in that, but it was showed like the top states for you know, where real estate is faltering. A lot of it is in the Northeast and it's along the West Coast, okay? If you look at net migration, guess what? We've seen a lot of net migration on the Northeast and on the West Coast. And, and I'm, I should say multifamily real estate. So yeah, if you have net migration moving to, you know, different, you know, central part of the United States, Southeast part of the United States, it makes sense that those areas are struggling because now you've got the same number of units and actually maybe even more being delivered, competing for the exact same customer. And so you have to lower your lens in order to get that, that butt in the seat or that, that person in that apartment. So now, so to your point, is it crashing? Ask somebody from California or somebody from New York. But for somebody like in the Southeast where we're seeing a huge influx of net migration into the Carolinas and North Carolinas, there was another article by Axios, I wanna say back in July, the southeast part of the United States makes up a larger, six states in the southeast makes up more of the GDP than all of the northwest, northeast combined. And so that's huge. That's a huge flip just in a, in a short period of time of three years. And so, again, I encourage people look at it from a regional standpoint. Here's the thing. At some point in time, 5, 10, 15, maybe even 30 years from now, those trends will change again. Right. So we have to we have to keep our finger on the pulse. This isn't just, you know, a one and done, you know, you know, occurrence. No, you know, we're all we're we're forever seeing these trends in the market. You know, maybe California changes its laws and they get rid of their franchise tax and they start, you know, attracting investors back to their state or, you know, residents back to their state. We're going to see net migration to California. 
So we just got to, you know, as investors, especially as operators, we got to keep our finger on that pulse. Well, and, and that that is so true. And I think that, you know, when people look at real estate from the lens of five years back, that, that doesn't give you enough track record. That doesn't give you enough, you know, there's, there's not enough tail in the tape. You've got to actually be looking at what's happened over the last 20 years and then try and project out the next 20 years, as like you've indicated, where you're a- able to see, you know, and when we look at markets, we look at the same things. What markets are growing, not only just in size, but in, but in income, you know, because you, you I mean, you, you don't want to be going into a market that's mostly retirees because they have a whole different set of expectations and multifamily three-story walk-up is definitely not on their list, right? And so you've really got to drill down into your local markets and understand what it is your customer is going to want and where that's going to be a good investment for you. You know, how does that, you know, as you guys continue to grow and get bigger and bigger with, with all the things that you're doing, how do you see that being able, do you, do you find it easier with the larger organization to have a, spe- a specific, you know, research department and, you know, like you said, a vertical where you've got a managing partner over each one where you're able to actually process faster and do faster. And then, I mean, I I still believe that deals are always being done. Good market or bad deals are still getting done. And it's a matter of, are you positioned to take advantage of it? And it sounds like you guys have really taken the last 18 months to really look at how do you continue to grow and still be of service, even though you're the the 500 pound gorilla in the room. Not you, the other guys, obviously, right? But but you're the, you're the big one in the room at at your organization. But you can still play and still be light and still be nimble and still get deals. Yeah, I think I, I credit that a lot to well, one, how we're structured as a company, but two, we have an internal investment committee. So you know, part I think. Uh, and they meet on a weekly basis. And so we're const- we're reviewing that deal flow on a weekly basis the, in the investment plan on a weekly basis. And that does two things. One, it keeps us nimble. It keeps us all connected when we have multiple verticals. But it also, on a con- when we do have a deal that hits the table, it keeps everybody, you know, very conservative in their outlook, right? You know, it can be quite an echo chamber when somebody gets a multifamily deal on their table and they love multifamily. So what do they want? They want the multifamily deal to get across the table. But when you have to stand up and pre- present that deal in front of, you know, you know, both managing partners, partners of other verticals, and then also the investor relations team, they get to weigh in whether, you know, that is something that the investor wants to see right now because they've got their pulse on that conversation. You know, it becomes a very different conversation. In, yeah. In, you don't want to be the guy that told him to do it when it was wrong, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> totally. Steve, I told you that was not going to work. <laughs> what has happened before, right? Like we've yeah. all had that deal where you're like, I think this is going to work. And then you get it out there and you're like, Ooh, that went over. That was a dud. <laughs> like what happened? Yeah. That was smelly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're just like, you're, you just want to like take a break, like after you get that raise done. You're just like, oh man, was that yeah. was that raise ever going to stop? So we've all had yeah. that deal. Yeah. And to say that you have it, you guys, you're lying. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a matter of it. Absolutely. Or a matter of one. You know, there's deals that you make money on, and there's deals that you make wages on, and then there's deals that you learn lessons on. Those are the three kinds of deals, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So that's kept us really nimble in this environment, but also very conservative because, you know, you know, you have, 
that committee gets to pull coals, rightfully so, into the business plan and make sure that, you know, it, it's one worth its salt and two can be is something that our investors want to invest in. Yeah. Well, Whitney, you've been an absolute wealth of information and I really appreciate you, you know, you're, you've got a lot of knowledge because of the, the, the perch you're at and the place you are in the market. And you brought information that we don't often talk about here. You know, we, we kind of get in our own little holes here, but I really want to thank you for the insight that you brought. And I want to let our listeners know, where can they find you? Where can they find more education? Where can they find all things that are Whitney and how can they get involved? Absolutely. So the, our, our group is passiveinvesting.com. That's also the website. If you want to get connected directly with my educational resources, you can find me on that a subpage called passiveinvestingwithwhitney.com. And I've got a free ebook for you there. You can also, we can hop on a one-on-one call and talk about your real estate investing goals. And you get plugged into my Passive Investing Made Simple Masterclass. And also notified of like the wonderful podcast of the Multifamily Investor Nation that we hosted Shannon on it a couple months back. So all things are, are listed there at PassiveInvestingWithWhitney.com. Awesome. Well, thank you again. And listeners, thank you for participating in the activity of educating yourself because that's really what makes this really become passive investing is when you know what you're doing. And you have a business plan to execute. So if you guys would give us a like and subscribe on iTunes or Spotify, we would appreciate a great review. Other than that, we will see you guys at the next episode of the Real Estate Rundown. Thanks for listening. I hope you found tons of value in this show. It would help us a lot if you could rate and leave us a five-star review as we continue our mission to help others just like you in their real estate journey. Thank you. And we'll catch you on the next episode of Robnet's Real Estate Rundown.